Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And today we're going to cover verses 6 through 12. Now I know that last week if you were here, you'll remember we covered um, the entire chapter of Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. But if you were here, you probably noticed that I spent most of my time on verses 1 through 5. And so this kind of didn't feel good about it, so I sensed the Holy Spirit tell me to kind of dive a little bit deeper in verses 6 through 12. Uh, it's a tough topic to talk about in all honesty, but I think it's important that we do. Um, what we're going to be looking at primarily today is the judgment of God upon those who do not know the Lord, upon those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's a heavy, heavy teaching. You know, one person said this, in the day when all men will stand before God, the significant question for each of us will no longer be what we think of Christ, but what he thinks of us. You know, when we stand before the Lord on that day, uh, what will he see in us? What will he see we have done in our life? And that day when we stand before Christ will determine our final destination. And there's only two options. It's important for us to know, and that is heaven or hell. You know, a while back on, on an American battleship, the sailors crowded around their chaplain and they asked him, they asked their chaplain, do you believe in hell? No, said the chaplain, I, I don't believe in hell. Well then, said the soldiers, will you please resign? <laughs> For if there is no hell, we don't need you. And if there is a hell, we do not need to be led astray. Now, we're going to see that today, and again, it's a little tough to talk about, but it is so important for us to know what the Bible teaches. I actually want to start by reading verse 3 so we can kind of get the momentum here. Again, notice what Paul said, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Again, we saw last week, that Paul was grateful to God because the Thessalonians' faith was growing and their love was abounding. And so when I read that, I thought, Lord, help my faith to grow and Lord, help my love to abound. And whenever we see that, we just are so grateful to God for that, right? And then we read there next in verse 4 that Paul was so blessed by this that he even boasted look what it says so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of god for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure you know paul was grateful to god that their faith was growing paul was grateful to god that their love was abounding so much so that he boasted to other bodies about the body of believers in thessalonica again not because the you know, it was a beautiful, fancy type of building or because of their grand budget, but he boasted because of their faith, patience, and endurance in spite of the suffering and persecutions and tribulations that they were experiencing. And it's very important, I think, for us to really take to heart that during the hard times, um, don't give up. Don't even let up. Uh, during those hard times, when you look up, you will grow up. It's during those hard times that God will do a deep work in us. And Paul was so grateful to God 
And he, even the Apostle Paul, was blessed and impressed. This was actually evidence that they were truly born again. And their persecution would then be used as evidence against those who were persecuting them. Because we're going to see in our study today that no one gets away with sin. And so we read there in verse 5, which is manifest, there's that word evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. And so there was a lot of evidence for them being Christians, um, their faith, their love, their endurance during the hard times. Uh, But then as they were being persecuted, this would actually be used as evidence for God to judge those who are persecuting them. And it's not just because they were persecuting them. It's primarily because they rejected Jesus. And that's what we see now as we begin our study today. Notice it says in verse 6, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. It's real popular nowadays. You know, you talk to people and they'll tell you, well, how could a a loving God send someone to hell? How can a a loving God, you know, judge someone? You know, some people mistakenly believe that it's wrong for God to judge But here in the Bible, we read first in verse 5 that God's judgment is righteous. And then again, we read in verse 6 that it's a righteous thing for God to repay the unrepentant sinner. And Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, it is a righteous thing for God to judge sin and condemn sinners. A holy God cannot leave sin unjudged. People who say, well, I cannot believe in a loving God who would judge sinners and send people to hell... Understand neither the holiness of God nor the awfulness of sin. While it is true that God is love, we read that in First John chapter four verse eight. It is also true that God is light, First John chapter one verse five. And we need to know that in God there is no darkness at all. Therefore, He must judge sin. Think about it. If an appointed judge ignored crimes against the innocent, it would not be just. It would be unjust. It would be wrong for him not to judge. Therefore, God's judgment is right. And even as we read here, it is righteous. Notice again there in verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now, it's interesting to me, uh, even in reading this, I was fascinated by the, the, the word repay. Um, the word repay with tribulation, it means recompense. Uh, it means a due requital. And uh, what that means is God will pay back the good and the bad equally, fairly, appropriately, justly. And see, we learn these things about God. Um, it's kind of like this. The way it works is is kind of, uh, I don't know if funny is the right word, but it's, like I said, definitely fascinating. Do you guys remember when um, the Pharaoh wanted to destroy uh, Israel 
And, and part of his plan was to take all the boys and drown them in the river. Do you guys remember that? So, so what did God do in the end? God drowned their boys, their army, in the Red Sea. You guys remember that? It was kind of like, like equal. As a matter of fact, he, he killed all the firstborn. It's an amazing thing. The way you see the, the recompense, the way that God repays the sinner. Uh, we read the same thing as you go through the scriptures. If you remember, there was another plot. You read about it in the book of Esther. This guy Haman, um, he was really upset with Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. And so he built a gallow. He built a gallow 75 feet high. And he came up with a plan. He said, we got to wipe out the Jews, all the descendants of, you know, Abraham. But it, his plan backfired, if you remember. And what ended up happening was Haman was hung on his own gallow. And all of his sons died. You see, God kind of repaid him, right? We see that in the scriptures. Uh, there was another time where the, the counselors of the king, and you read about it in the book of Daniel chapter 6, they wanted to take down Daniel. And so what did they do? They came up with a plan. We came up with a law. It was binding. And they, they, they made a way for the king to throw Daniel into the lion's den. Right? That was their thing. That was their attempt to destroy Daniel. If you remember, God protected Daniel in the lion's den. The next day he came out. God saved him. But all those guys that wanted to take him down and throw him in the lion's den were then thrown themselves into the lion's den. So much so they, that, they, that they got devoured, the Bible says, even before they hit the bottom. You see, God sees all these things. And, and we read about it today and all the atrocities that are going on around the world, all the persecution of God's children. And I think it's important for us to know that God is just. And that's what we read in the scriptures. You know, God pays back the bad, and, and he also pays back the good. Notice there in verse 6, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled, what? Rest, right? Rest with us. The word rest uh, is an interesting word in the Greek language. It speaks of a loosening, a relaxing. Can you guys kind of relax right now? Kind of? And you're like, no, it's a heavy message, you know. Um, you know, it actually was used in literature of a guy who had like a, a bow and arrow and, and he had it tight and then he kind of just let it loose. Really uh, a fascinating word. Um, it speaks of a rest from persecutions, a liberty, even an ease. And God says, uh, right now, you're not there. You know, right now on planet Earth, you're, you're not there, you know, you will, be, you will be one day. You see, in one sense, when we become Christian, we receive rest immediately. Um, and the rest that we receive when we get saved is the fact that we're no longer burdened by the condemnation or guilt of our sins. Don't bear that burden. You are forgiven of your sins. Jesus paid for your sins when he died for you on the cross. And so there's a rest in that Thank you, Lord. I, I, I'm not, you know, guilty of my sins because I've received Christ as my Lord and Savior. And there is a, an also a rest in the fact that we don't have to work to get saved. We don't have to earn our way to salvation. We've uh, given Christ our life, and therefore 
we are on our way to heaven. And so when we come to Christ, we rest. We rest in Christ. We rest in the finished work of the cross, death, and resurrection. Um, But to come to Christ means we repent of our sins, we're willing to surrender those sins, and we receive Jesus uh, as the Savior of our life. It kind of reminds me... Do you guys remember the story in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 when all the Pharisees were saying, hey, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and they were putting a whole bunch of binding laws on the people. It was just, it was weighing them down. And then Jesus said there, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, so in one sense, we have rest immediately. You're forgiven of your sins. Don't let the enemy condemn you. You're free. You're not guilty. And number two, you don't have to work your way to salvation, right? And so in one sense, we have rest. But here's the thing, and this is where a lot of times I think Christians, they, they get confused. You see, It doesn't mean that when we become Christians, we no longer suffer persecutions or hard times or tribulations or challenges. You know, if I told you that, then I'd be lying to you. As a matter of fact, I would honestly say that if you're trying to live for the Lord, you're going to suffer persecutions probably even more. And in that sense, Paul says, there's no rest on this side of time. There's no rest in, in this wicked world. Because look what he says there in verse 7. Notice when the rest begins. Notice in verse 7, he says, And to give you who are troubled, rest with us. Notice when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You see, that's when we receive rest. The rest begins when Jesus comes. And the tribulation on planet earth will tarry until Jesus comes returns and so we got to know that you guys jesus said the same thing in john sixteen thirty three. in this world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer because i've overcome the world and so we're going to go through hard times will that knock us down maybe but it won't knock us out we get up because we know one day there'll be no more sin one day there'll be no more pain no more sorrow no more suffering no more death that will happen one day But today, we have to go through all these things. You know, and when we think about the rest that we're going to receive, it comes synonymously with the return of Christ and the wrath of Christ upon the world. Notice again in verse 7, And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty Angels, And here's where it gets intense. Inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You see, the Lord returns, will receive rest, from tribulation, but the non-believer will receive the wrath. And it doesn't kind of sound kind of funny when you read it, Revelation, the wrath of the Lamb. Doesn't it sound kind of funny? <laughs> the wrath of the Lamb. And it's, it's just kind of like, it's just, what it's saying is that God never wanted to judge. It wasn't God's heart, God's 
will is that none would be safe, none would be, none would perish, right? But Jesus came, died on the cross, tried to prevent it, but unfortunately, most people will reject that offer. And so, what we see, you guys, is that you know the Lord is 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 going to come, and and the world will be judged. Now, in looking at this, we're going to see that elements of the wrath are going to be seen in the tribulation period. Remember that Revelation chapter six through twenty. And then there are going to be elements of the Lord's wrath, even in the millennial kingdom. When the Bible says that Jesus will rule with a rod, yes, a rod, Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. And so if anyone gets out of line during that millennial kingdom, Jesus will, you know, rule with a rod. We see that, you know, the wrath of Christ. And then we know at the end of the thousand years, justice will be served, judgment will come. And finally, formally, once and for all, for those who have rejected Christ. Now, this all happens when Jesus, notice again there, is revealed. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Jesus has already come. No, when Jesus comes a second time, he's going to be unveiled. The first time he came, his glory was masked. But the second time he comes, he's going to be revealed. The Greek word is the word apocalypse. It means manifestation. It means a a laying bare, a disclosure of truth. It means an unveiling. You see, in one sense, up to this point, Jesus has been veiled. But when he comes again, he will be unveiled. He will appear, and we read in 1 John 3, 2, and we will see him as he is. You know, when we see the Lord's coming for us, his return is rest for them. His return is wrath. It's interesting. The same Greek word is used in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, connecting the revelation with the wrath. It says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And so, in a nutshell, you guys, I know this is kind of like, you're like, well, what is all this? What I'm trying to say is this, that, um, you know, for me, when I read this right here, and and we get into the the judgment of God, two things uh, God does to me. Number one, as a pastor looking out into the congregation, my, my first question is, do you really know the Lord? You know, for you to really search your hearts. You know, I, I don't know if you can identify with this. I don't know if you can kind of follow me on this. But sometimes, you know, you find people and they go into church on a rather frequent basis. But there's something about them that you still wonder, are they born again? Do they really know the Lord? Because there's something there that, that is just kind of like it's not giving you that assurance about them. And, 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 you know, if you're here and you don't know for sure whether or not you're a Christian, what that means is there hasn't been a breaking. There hasn't been like a surrender of your life. You haven't been honest with God. You know, God's, you know, coming. Jesus is coming. He came the first time as a lamb. He's coming the second time as a lion. He'll give us believers rest from all the tribulations. But the non-believer, he's coming to bring wrath. Now, now God is, is warning of us of this. He's, he's revealing us not just for, for information, but for salvation. You know, and, and what ends up happening is a lot of times, and, and John chapter 3, it, it tells us the reason. 
It says the reason that they don't really come to the Lord is because they're holding on to their sin. There's some sin that they don't want to let go of, not just unbelief. And God is just saying to us, I think today, you know, to look at this and let it bring us to a point of just absolute surrender, complete repentance, and, and to receive Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life. Lord, from this day forward, you call the shots. Lord, from this day forward, I trust you and, and no one else, not myself, not a religion, not a church. Jesus, I give you my heart. You know, that's what it does to me in the midst of a congregation. But it also, it also stimulates me to evangelization. You know, when you look out at all the people, and some of them are good people, but it doesn't really matter. They won't be good enough. Do they know Christ? And so, you know, for us as a church, it manifests itself, I think, in a practical way that we're always praying for others and reaching out as the Spirit would lead us. Not cookie-cutter approaches, but really, you know, fishing for men as God leads us. And it even, it even stimulates me to just say, I want to, you know, pray, Lord, you make us a healthy church. Because not everyone's a, a pastor. Not everyone's an elder evangelist. We all have different parts of the body. But when every part does its share, whatever that particular part is, then it helps us to become a healthy church. And, Lord, I know that you'll use a healthy church to reach a lost world. Because this is their future. You know, we read right here some crazy things about the future of those who reject God's salvation. What kind of future do you have? What kind of future do you have? You have a beautiful future as a Christian. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. The love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the patience, the goodness, the kindness, the blessings, heaven. I mean, you have such an awesome future you, husband and wife and children, not saying it's easy, but it's beautiful. Your family, you single people, your future is so wonderful as you serve the Lord and he's giving you the freedom to do that. But what about them? You know, what about those who don't know the Lord? What's their future? We have to think about that. Notice what we read right here. Again, in verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. First thing, and, and you can write down a few things here if you want to. If not, you can just read this text and it's pretty easy to understand. Their, their future, number one, is, is fire. Fire. You remember when the unrighteous rich man died in Luke chapter 16, verse 24? You remember that when he was there in hell, that he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 8, he said, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. So Jesus said, we read also in Matthew twenty five forty one that he, Jesus, will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, 
The fires of hell and the lake of fire, according to Matthew 25, 41, were never intended for men. But what we find today is that many men have chosen to follow the devil all the way to his home. And so, again, you know, I know there are those who would say, nah, that's not true. Well, you argue with God. You argue with the Bible. I'm just going to tell you what it says. Fire. You know, even the world will be destroyed by fire, according to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 12. And then there's Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so for us just to know that, you know, just to know that every, every, uh, every Sunday, I have, to, I have to say every Sunday, you know, my wife always asks me, did you unplug the iron? Right? And she'll even call me. Did you unplug the iron? Yes, sweetheart. You know, I unplugged the iron. What's she afraid of? She's afraid of a fire or whatever, you know, the curling iron or, you know, different things, the stove. Uh, probably, and if I can say this, maybe in all fairness, uh, when she was younger, there was a fire in her house. Her dad had a 1957 Corvette. Beautiful. It got burned in the fire. So, you know, because of the fact that there's potential fire, you know, um, there's certain things that we need, to, we need to consider. You know, when we think of the future of the non-believer, we have to think, number one, of this word right here in verse 8, flaming fire. And then there's the word vengeance that we read right here. Notice again, flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God. You know, Luke 21, in describing this whole time frame in verse 22 said, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. You know, God will have a day of vengeance. We read about it in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And you can cross-reference Leviticus 19, 18, and Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. As a matter of fact, um, go over to Hebrews. Maybe put a little marker here. And if you go over to Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 26. It says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. And here it is in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, I mean, God, a lot of times I think we make God into our own image. You know, and you would never spank your kid or you would never, you know, I mean, I think of these guys who shut the door on prisoners. You know, I mean, who the one who actually shuts the door. Maybe there's this guy and he's committed this crime. It could be he molested someone, he murdered someone, or he, you know, did something else and he was guilty and they're 
you know, the sentence, and then the sentence was executed, and somebody, and he might be a real nice guy, he might have a nice smile, he might be all friendly and, and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, the day comes where they got to shut the door. See, that's, that's justice. And when we think of God, don't create him into your own image. You have to submit to the way that he has revealed himself to be. And when I, when I read this right here again, you know, it's just because we want to know what the Bible teaches. And, and what it does is it stimulates us, like I said, to search our own heart. And then number two, to evangelize the lost. You know, to really make sure that we have that, that heart. You know, in the, in the book of Jude, uh, the Bible talks about that. About, you know, about pulling people out of the fire. And I pray that we would have that heart, you guys. I, I, I really do. Back in, in Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, uh, he mentions fire. He mentions vengeance. And you will, I, I will say this regarding vengeance, uh, just in case you get confused. Did you guys know that vengeance is not the same as revenge? Did you guys know that? You see, the purpose of vengeance is to satisfy God's law while the purpose of revenge is to pacify a personal grudge. Do you think God holds personal grudges? No way. I mean, he sent his son to die for the wicked, wicked, wicked world on that cross. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his alone love and that while we were his enemies, he died for us. When Jesus was there, having gone through all that torture of being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. God doesn't hold a personal grudge. You know, vengeance is, is, is not revenge. Vengeance is the satisfaction of God's holy law. And so, you know, you, you, you just know, man, this is what the Bible teaches. You're not going to hear that. In a lot of churches, you're not going to hear a lot of churches talk about sin or or talk about judgment or talk about hell because they think that people won't come back. And so they hold back. But, you know, one of the beautiful things about teaching through the Bible is that we don't get to choose. We have to submit to what our next passage is. And this is where we are. And I pray that God would use it. In our lives, you know, I pray that we would go out and, man, do our best as the Holy Spirit, I'm sure. Here's the thing, because, you know, I, how many of you here wish you could save the whole world? You're like, oh, if I could do whatever, you know, I'll do it. I'll learn to do a thousand push-ups if that'll save the whole world, right? But you can't. And, and in one sense, um, you know, in, in one sense, God's not calling us to. But there are people in your life that I believe God is laying on your heart. And there are things that he's called you to do just to be faithful where he's placed you that will be part of people getting saved. And so be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Be obedient to him as he lays that person on your heart and you give him a text or a phone call or maybe a visitation, a card. You know, you reach out, you share the Lord, you carry... Maybe a couple of tracks in your in your pocket, you know, and you're just constantly open to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we know. We know what happens if they leave the curling iron plugged in, if you know what I mean. You know, we know what happens, man. And so, you know, look what he says right here. He says in verse eight, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those 
this is the real reason, who do not know God. That's the, the thing. They don't know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is they don't just, they don't believe the good news of the gospel. That's all it means. I mean, Jesus died for you, was put in a grave. He rose the third day. All you have to do is believe. But they won't, right? He says in verse 9 that these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You know, and this is, this is what the Bible says, you know, uh, everlasting destruction. The Greek word talks about something without an end. It n- never ceases. It will always be. The linguistic key to the New Testament said that this about everlasting destruction, the, the word doesn't mean annihilation, but implies the loss of all things that give worth to existence, you know. Because some cults out there, they'll say, well, if you don't know God, then, you know, when you die, you just kind of disappear. You, you cease to exist. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses will teach that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And Warren Wiersbe again said this, some cultists have tried to dilute the meaning of everlasting destruction, saying it means either temporary suffering or total annihilation but both ideas are false the phrase means eternal judgment no matter how men might try or want to twist the truth you know again mark 9:43 it says if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched yeah, I remember when I used to go to Calvary Chapel, West Covina, I had a friend and he came to church with me. And Raul that day was talking a lot about hell. I mean, he does probably huh, a lot. And, um, and I remember my friend, he's all, he, got, he went up and he got saved, right? He got saved. And, uh, and afterwards, I'm all, I was so happy. I'm all, that's so cool. You know, you gave your life to Christ. And he was kind of mad. He's like, yeah, I had to, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go to hell. And I said, well, that's, that's okay. <laughs> you know, Eventually, you're going to find that, that the reason to get saved is not only not wanting to go to hell, but, but I want to go to heaven. I want to be with God. But this is really you know, what the Bible teaches. And, and if we don't, if we hold back, if we water it down, if we choose not to talk about it, then I think that we are misrepresenting God and we're going to stand before him one day and give an account. I think it's wrong. And so, you know, you present the truth of what the Bible teaches. He says right there, uh, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. To me, that, that breaks my heart, not to be in the presence of the Lord. And in the, and in the power, he says, of his glory. The glory of his power. They won't experience that. Heaven, and here's, just in case you're wondering, here's a couple of things about heaven. Heaven is the presence of the Lord. And heaven is the glory of his power. One day we're going to be home in heaven. We're going to say, wow, look at this place that God made. Wow, it's glorious. He's powerful. And so, you know, in light of all this, notice verse 10, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. See, all this happens, the return of Christ, the rest for the saints, and the wrath for the non-believer. 
It all happens. And when Jesus is unveiled, it's going to be so cool. We will, we're going to see him, and it talks about just you know, him being admired among all those who believe. And so you know, they had believed the testimony. They had believed the gospel. They had received Jesus. I believe that many, if not most, of you here today are truly born again. Do you know what that means? Do you ever stop and think about it? This morning I was spending time with the Lord and, and I was just thinking, and I, I know I shared this with you guys before, but I was just thinking, Lord, I remember the days when I didn't know you. I remember the days when I, and I did my sin, I did my drugs, I did my drinking, I did all the stuff that go along with that lifestyle. I remember the days when it was just a religion. But then I remember the day, Lord, that I was born again. And I remember, and, and, and again, again, it can be simply described like in the book of John chapter 9, that once I was blind, but now I see. Really, huh? Once I was deaf, but now I hear. Once I was mute, but now I speak. Once I was dead, but now I live. God, you have saved me. And I, and I, just, I, I just, man, I thank him for that. You know, don't let anything hold you back, you guys. Praise him for that salvation. And if you're here and you don't know the Lord, give him your heart. You know, one day you're going to stand before him. And I pray that you will have Jesus as your advocate. Paul even prayed, and we'll close with this. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, Paul, in light of this, in light of like hell and, and, and you know, judgment and, and, and their salvation, in light of this, Paul prayed for them. And, uh, and, and he prayed, notice the, about their calling, that God would count them worthy of this calling. Now, whenever you see that word calling, I always think of salvation and service. So do you guys ever get phone calls that you don't want to answer? Okay, this one's from God, right? God's calling you. Will you pick up the phone? Will you answer the call, the invitation to salvation? If you don't know Christ, I pray that you would. Answer that call. Give him your heart. And then there's a call to service. A lot of people don't, don't answer that call either. The Lord's calling. Oh, no, he's going to ask me to do something. <laughs> answer the call. Answer the call. That's what I think Paul is praying for, that, that they would be kind of worthy of that salvation and that service and that they would fulfill, they would finish everything that they were made and created to do. It's a faith for forgiveness and a faith that would actually finish. And so I pray, man, that we would have that, that, that when we do have that walk and have that work. Notice it says right there in verse 12, that Christ would be glorified. You know, a lot of times I pray, Lord, be glorified in the service. You guys ever pray that? Lord, be glorified today. But you know, when you read John chapter 15, it says that if we abide in him, which means living in constant communion, then we're going to bear much fruit. And then when we bear much fruit, 
Christ is glorified. So it's not just a, a prayer that we kind of throw up. It's a life that we live. When we bear much fruit, we're talking moral fruit, we're talking ministry fruit, Christ will be glorified. And so may God speak to us regarding our hearts and, and whether or not we know the Lord, things to really man take into consideration, and then also your evangelization. You know, I got to ask for prayer in closing because this week, you know what happened to me? It's never happened to me in my whole life. I lost my wallet. Yeah. Have, how many of you here have lost your wallet? I'm just curious. Oh, so I'm not alone. <laughs> my whole life, I've never lost my wallet. You know, two things I always brag about because um, I misplace my wallet every day. Okay. But I told my wife, I said, but I never lost it. Okay. Not only that, like when my gas tank is really low, like it's like, kind of like the lights on and it's below the line, I, my wife says, you need gas. And I would tell her, don't worry, sweetheart, I'll get it. I've never run out of gas. So that's probably next, right? <laughs> but what happens, you guys can relate to me on this, right? What happens if you lose your wallet with your ID, your credit card, you know, your $150 of cash or whatever you got in there, you know? I tell you what happens. You search vigorously for it. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you clean the house like you've never cleaned the house before. I mean, you look into things that you've never looked into. You go places. You do things. You are desperate to find that more than ever, right? And, and, and the Lord really ministered to me. He said, that's how I am right now, Manny, because I've, I've lost a lot of children. And I, and I know that you're you know, doing your thing and you're living your life. And you're having fun, and it's a blessing. But you got to know that I would love for you to join the search party. Help me. Search for the lost. I mean, if that's how you feel in losing your wallet, imagine how God feels with all these people who don't know him. The Bible says this in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's join him, you guys. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your love and your grace. 